All right, uh, we are in which chapter of John? Does anybody remember? Uh, I think we're in John 7. John 7. I uh, know, I think we're still in John 6. <laughs> yes, I do think we're still in John 6. Um, in fact, we have not gotten very far in John 6. Are you sure that we even got into John 6? Uh, no, it's 5. 31 is where we should... 531, uh-huh. Okay. Okay, then we can start with John 531. I'm not going to call on you guys to read because of the technical problems of that. Um, okay. So we'll just go around the table here. Uh, Peter, would you read John uh, 531 to 38? <coughs> 31 mm-hmm. to... 38. And this is Jesus talking... If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. I just uh, had a moment of recognition on this passage. I have been working on the trial of Jesus with Caiaphas. Not so much this last week, but the week before. I, I was working on that. Uh, because I've been doing a study of Babylonian influences on Judaism uh, that trickled down to the time of Christ. Um, Keeping in mind that the Jews living in Babylonia absorbed a lot of what was around them. And that stayed with them. In fact, we have two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Babylonian Talmud is much, much bigger. It includes the Mishnah, it includes the Gemara, and it, it, it includes a lot of um, laws that were current in Jesus' day, because it, what, what it is is the written down, the Mishnah became the written down portion of the laws that were vogue in Jesus' day. So, I've been, I've been studying this, and one of the things I've been studying is Caiaphas makes Jesus swear, or tries to make Jesus swear an oath. He puts him under oath. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? This goes back to a legal practice that was very, very prominent in the ancient Near East, particularly in Mesopotamia, particularly in Babylonia and Assyria. Uh, the practice of the what we call assertory oath, assertory, meaning uh, I make an assertion, I say that 
I am innocent of the crime that you are accusing me of. Uh, sometimes I've called it the oath of innocence. Uh, Job makes an oath of innocence in the book of Job because he has no witnesses. Uh, the three friends let him down. So he has no witnesses, and in, in the ancient Near Eastern, and particularly Neo-Babylonian court of law, it was dependent on witnesses. But originally, in old Babylonian periods, this oath of innocence was the final word. Once the, the defendant said the oath of innocence before the gods, uh, the, the jury was out and, the, and everybody went home and that was it because God was, the gods were going to answer, you see. And uh, what happened during the partly Neo-Syrian period, but especially in the Neo-Babylonian period and on, is that this assetory oath no longer was deemed as valid as witnesses. So they shifted from cultic to, to having witnesses, testimonies in court to establish whether the person was guilty or innocent. Uh, and the other th feature of the Neo-Babylonian period is that during this period there was a shift uh, from conciliation, trying to bring two parties together and conciliate them uh, to having a verdict. So it became extremely legal, uh, extremely forensic. What is interesting here is that Jesus says, if I testify about myself, <clears throat> Swear the oath of innocence, for example. My testimony is invalid. So he's, he's wiping out <laughs> that entire assetory oath as any... And that's why when Caiaphas asks him to swear such an oath, Jesus refused. He says, you have said. Turns it right back on Caiaphas. Uh, because Jesus, you remember, in Matthew 5, 33, 34... So it makes it very clear, we're not to swear at all. Don't swear at all. You let your words be yes or no. Anything else from that than that comes from evil. So I don't know that Jesus would have put his hand on the Bible and said, I swear to tell the truth. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that is uh, all behind this. Uh, and, and then notice in this passage that... Um, he says, there is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that his testimony is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept such human testimony. Even that's not valid. But I say these things so you may be saved, meaning you can't, t you can't handle my telling you it's not at all what's important. So John's his witness, then? John's his witness, but even that... Jesus says, I don't accept. From Jesus' viewpoint, but not from the... Not from the people. people. Then he says, um, He was a burning and shining lamp while you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a testimony greater than John. And now here's the testimony that is going to sway the cosmic court. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. That is not forensic evidence. That is empirical evidence. 
Um, and and I maintain, I maintain that the court of heaven, the ju- court of judgment in heaven, is not a legal court. It is a cosmological court. And what Jesus says here simply reinforces that. It, it's very clear in the book of Job. Because what ultimately determines Job's guilt or innocence is how he behaves, how he responds to his trials. That's really important. Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Um, what, is, what is really going to settle Job's case is how he behaves, what he says about God in relationship to his trials. That's what determines the evidence. And there's a lot of other stuff uh, in Job that I can go through, but I won't take the time. But Jesus is saying that the evidence is that the Father sent him because of what Jesus has been doing. He's been doing the work that the Father sent him to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know what those works are. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. a lot of people seem to fall in because of the miracles or because they were one of the verses here fed. <laughs> and they saw so what are his works? So well, the works. miracles are a starting place, aren't they? I mean, miracles tend to be for unbelievers, so they're a starting place. But the greater work is what? What is the greater work that Jesus does? Well, it's restoration. And returning people to the Father. Forgiveness of sin. Restoring. Restoring relationships, restoring people. Uh, in, in every way. Jesus restores people holistically. So he had a heavenly agenda, but not an earthly agenda. Exactly. He wasn't going to make them better Jews, or build a bigger temple, or start mm-hmm. another church, or any of these kind, or mm-hmm. baptize them so they had more tithing. <laughs> or leading a rebellion as some thought. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I find this interesting because uh, forensic scholars like to take the Gospel of John as a legal gospel and that the whole issue is uh, the witness, the, the courtroom witness and testimony. But I think Jesus is very clarifying here. The, co- the cosmological court is the creation based on creation. And in creation, only empirical evidence can stand. And, and there's a, a number of places where uh, I can point you to where that seems to be the case. So in creation, only empirical evidence can stand. Yeah. Because creation is built on cause-effect relationships, it's built on reality, built on experience. Forensic evidence is built on claims, on, on what people say they saw. Uh, there's some experiential portion of that, but it, gets, it tends to get overrided by uh, very, uh, very non-dynamic, very static kinds of evidence. Uh, Keeping keep in mind that the hallmark of difference between the Hebrew Bible and Greek thought, which is what we've inherited. Uh, and we're highly forensic. We're, we're probably more forensic than, the entire, than any portion of the entire ancient Near East. That thinking goes back to Greek thought, 
and Roman thought, which is static, punctiliar, the dot on the line, whereas Hebrew thought is holistic and dynamic. So instead of linear thinking, like you have in Greek and Roman thought, in Hebrew thought, you have holistic and dynamic thinking. It's not static, it's dynamic. So, he's saying it isn't just those testimonies, it's my whole life. It's my life, mission and work. It's the evidence you see, you experience. Let's go to 1 John. Um, He's depending, that's his... That's his strongest witness. Is his watch. Why he did that? To, he did that, John the Baptist. Too. Mm-hmm. Come watch and see what I do. Right, right, right. Excellent, excellent. I'm I'm loving this because it, I need a footnote. And I'm I'm writing a paper actually <laughs> on the, the the influences of Judaism and how it is it is Babylonian views of God and and reality and human relationships that caused the death of Jesus and that Jesus was countering in his life, uh, and that feeds right into Revelation. Was the Babylonian concept more like the Greek concept? It was, it was the beginning of it, I think. Nobody has, nobody has raised that. They all go to the Greeks, because it's most clear in the Greeks. But once you have idolatry, you have static. Once you have images in which you put your God, you have static thinking. So, it's not dynamic. It's not dynamic anymore. So the Hebrews were the only ones that had that kind of dynamic, holistic, moving philosophy. It's a very different philosophy than everybody else in, in yeah. the region. Yeah. You know, if it's any, is it different than Eastern philosophy? I think it's different. I mean, I can't go back. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the history of, of China and all that, but Buddhism is very static. You know, that stayed neither hot nor cold, neither, neither no emotion, uh, just p- the center yeah. of peace. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's static. Everything's in a balance. Uh-huh. So First John 1, we declare to you, this is the witness, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's the witness. Yeah, or they go after that. Would the people understand that? That that was a total... they have enough Jewish influence that they would understand that that's a more powerful witness than some testament? If they were in touch with the Old Testament enough, they would have understood it. But if they viewed the Old Testament through the lens of the Talmud, through the lens of, of rabbinic Judaism, it would be a little bit different. There would be some of it there, but it would be not as prominent, I think. Well, apparently some of the trial believed they would understand. Yeah, they did. And, and you can understand that the people might understand this better than the rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees for the reason that the people heard the storyline. And if you understand the storyline, you understand that when we read the Old Testament today, we, we lose the storyline. We, we pick and choose. We, we've, 
really cast the Old Testament into law uh, and into a court setting and into do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really how we read the Old Testament. That is not how the Old Testament was meant to be read. Even the laws are cast in narrative settings. Even Deuteronomy has something of a narrative base. Because Moses is recounting the story of their exodus and of Sinai and so on. <clears throat> now, admittedly, and this again brings up the major and minor voices that I talk about. Deuteronomy is much more major voice. It's much more adapted to the understanding of the people because it's cast in treaty form, which now you have a static institution into which it's cast. But uh, nonetheless, there is narrative there. And if you look at Proverbs and wisdom literature, it's all cast in creation. Creation is really the roots of, Judea, of, of, of Hebrew thinking. And creation is not static. Creation is dynamic. Is that why, um, you know, with Israel and saying, he, he will, it always made me feel uncomfortable. He says, well, if you do this, I'll bless you, or if this happens, it's like he can change. This is not, this is not static, it is dynamic. And if you are, if you obey me or if you follow these things, then this will happen. If it doesn't happen, something else will happen. It isn't like law. <laughs> it's based on relationship and participation. <laughs> Is that cause, It's cause and effect. Yeah. You cannot have a healthy relationship unless both parties recognize the causes and effects that they could contribute to that relationship. In, in, in mental health, that's really clear. That, and if you don't understand cause-effect, you can never have a bonded, deep, trusting, romantic relationship. It, it's always usury, it's always, it's always, you know, um, and that's one of the, like you do it with adolescent kids uh, that didn't develop, have that, they, they, they do out and bound kind of thing, you know, real rough kind of <clears throat> experience and stuff, well, if you don't put up a tent, you're going to get wet. you got to teach them that cause-effect, where they will never... I didn't really understand that time. Was it at Berkeley? The shop they're working with the street people and inner city. They never learned cause-effect in the city, because there isn't... What well, we learned agrarian, we learned that if you don't feed the animals, they die. If you don't feed the chickens, you don't have any eggs. <laughs> in the city, well, you owe me. So it's all this manipulative usury. It's like when I worked in the penitentiary. It's that same kind of mentality. It was always someone else's fault, or it was blaming and shaming, and it was different than that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is why I keep coming back to creation. Because mm. when you're in the creation model, you are in nature, and you see the cause and effect relationships of nature working. Yeah. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in the country, right? Uh, the Academy, Laurelwood Academy had a farm. And we used to go visit the cows on Sabbath afternoon. Not every yeah, Sabbath afternoon, yeah. but occasionally we would go and visit the cows. And we understood that if they didn't get milked every day, they would lose, they would get yeah, sick yeah, and die yeah. uh, or stop producing milk. Um, they had to be milked every day. There was this cause-effect relationship. And um, we, we understood that you plant seeds in the ground and you get what you planted and, 
and and what you put in the ground looks a lot like what's going to come out like you put corn in the ground and it comes out corn so so i was blessed i was really really blessed but it was my shock when i found out that inner city kids don't even know where their food comes from so yeah, you know, this is this is huge. This is a, a different playing field than in in the legal setting, which tends to be the more that user kind of usury kind of setting, uh, where we where everybody's blaming each other and, and we're trying to establish whose blame it really rests. But we don't have in the rudiments of what makes that understanding possible, which is the actions, the works, the deeds. That, that is neat that he, you know, probably the scripture language crossing those incredible. And Jesus is traversing, bears, you know, Jesus is traversing cosmic space here. Totally different, yeah. My wife has been writing a play for a couple of months of, um, on, uh, it's around the basis of Thanksgiving, but she has some of these ancient books, they don't know really what it was like and going through, but they, there's some, I had no idea, and she's been reading to me and telling me about where before we had democracy, all these, most of these other nations still have this, I forgot the name of it, but whoever was in power had the right to override or control or punish or kill anybody below them. There's, just, there's a name for this thing. And that was how things were, that the people that were in charge... And doesn't that, hasn't that come wow. down to us? Wow. Hasn't yeah, that, that come that down to ago. us in yeah. our picture of God? Yeah. The sovereignty of God doctrine. Yeah. I meet it in, in commentaries of evangelicals that are very strong on the sovereignty of God doctrine. I, I meet it. No, it can't mean this because that would undermine the sovereignty of God. And it's this, this totalitarian kind of picture. Yeah, it was really, well, we still see that in so much of government in the world that, you know, you say, well, like one thing Ed was telling me, he's watching what happened before the Olympics, where the Olympic Stadium was, we all watched, they went in and just moved out and, you know, with clubs and moved out the peasants and the poor people and, well, they had, their little they had the, 80,000 people displaced. Yeah, they had the sovereign right to go in, because, you know, is that cold? See, how can the government do that? Well... You know, they operate on a different basis. <laughs> um. I just had a question back, Babylon. I thought Assyria came in before Babylon. Did I get those backwards? There's the old Babylonian period. <clears throat> okay, let's let's go all the way back. You have the early dynastic period, which is when artwork begins to emerge that depicts kings and and so on. And you have. A, Tablets that depict uh, some certain economic transactions, I believe. Uh, and then you have the uh, early Sumerian period. And you have Akkad, which is the beginning of the Akkadian peoples that uh, spoke the Babylonian language. And then you have back to Syria, Sumerian. Uh, Sumerian the Sumerians of the Or III period. Uh, and then you have the Old Babylonian period. Then you have uh, the Kassite period, which they ruled Babylon. The Kassites were foreigners who ruled Babylon. Actually, the old Babylonian period, there were Amorites who ruled Babylon, very possibly. Uh, 
Uh, there's there's some question about that, but I'm pretty sure they're Amorites. And then you have the Middle Assyrian period. Middle Assyrian period, I believe, overlaps with the Kassite period, but I'm, I've never really sat down and really looked at that for sure. Uh, and then you have the Neo-Assyrian period of the great... This is now first, cent, first, first millennium. Okay, Before that, second millennium. Mm -hmm. Before that, third millennium. The first millennium, you have the rise of the great kings of Sargon II, of uh, Sennacherib, Ezrahaddon, uh, Ashurbanipal, which brought in a tremendous amount of bureaucracy. There is less negotiation going on now. There's less community. There's less ability to sit down at the table and really discuss things out. But much more top-down control. And, um, the, and as in the second millennium, the king does own all the land, so he can rip it out from under you at any time he wants. That's what makes Israel so unique. Israel has this inheritance that they got from God. And that is passed down family to family, and no one can take that from them. And the great story in the Bible that testifies to that belief is in the Naboth vineyard story. Where Ahab decides to operate under outside Israel law and lay hold of Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't do that. That's in my inheritance. Okay. So... <clears throat> There's that period, and then you have the Neo-Babylonian period, and the rise of, of Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar. So, uh, yeah, Assyria does come before the Neo-Babylonian period, but before Assyria, long before Assyria, you have the Old Babylonian period, so and the Kassite period. What you are studying, you're saying, they really, the leadership would not accept his his witness or authority, and they went back to their laws and says you have broken the law, therefore you die. They're not willing to accept this approach like to no. Yeah. They the they want a legal approach. Yeah. Because the legal the, the thing about legal approach is that it allows us to control. Right. I have a philosophy of law book at home. I was just reading in the early chapters, um, and, and they talk about the difference between descriptive law, which is their cosmological law, and prescriptive law, which is, of course, your legal forensic law. And when they talk about it, they say, basically, the difference is the descriptive law simply tells us how it works, what really is, and the prescriptive law actually is, allows us to control, and it uses force. It's built on force. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of the backstory, I think, behind this whole discussion in John. Is that where we get <clears throat> so much of We're reading it from our perspective, but and he's so much of Scripture, if... You know, if this happens, um, then it, it, sound, it sounds punitive. But it's, it's really what he's doing there. He says, you know, if, if you don't treat people wise, you'll get treated the same way. This is an illegal thing. He's kind of just describing the way it works. Is that 
Well, it's the design of God. Everything is a design. And a lot of it's descriptive, yeah. and it's so easy for us to think, oh, okay, he's going to punish you if you do this, or this happens. Yeah. And, but he's just saying... It's worded. The language is legal, because the people who write it are in that mode. Is that the way they translated it? Or That's the way they people? understood it. Remember, remember, oh. the language is not inspired. The words are not inspired. It is the message of the people, actually, the persons who wrote the Bible that are inspired. They wrote in their own words, and God has not put himself on trial in words, logic, or rhetoric. So the Greeks, Greeks the, the Greek thought really dominated a lot of the writing. The more I would say the Babylonian, the, the ancient Near Eastern kinds oh, of thinking. Of the Old Testament. Of yeah. the Old Testament. So it, um, hmm. That's a big issue. To, I mean, a different worldview as you're looking at the scripture and the passage. That's that's why you have to compare scripture with scripture and not settle for just the whole truth is in one text. So God has to keep to His design, otherwise Satan's claims are true. So God. Has, otherwise, we have chaos right. because because nothing's dependable then. Right. We can't be certain that if I plant tomatoes, I'm going to have tomatoes. <laughs> Let's see if we can finish this chapter. Uh, Ed, oh, Ed's closed his Bible. Oh, I thought you were, you were done or something. No. I can get it open. John 5, 39 to 47. Okay. Um, 8, 7, 6, 5. So you went... Uh, 39 to 47 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> okay. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Hmm. For have ye believed Moses, you would have delivered, believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this in from my translation. Well, actually, from my own interpretation, um, because there's some things missing in the King James version, and there's some things missing in the way we read it. Uh, you search uh, the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings. But I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's character, and you do not accept me. If another comes in his own character, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from one who alone is God? Name in the, in the Bible has the connotation of character. So, what I think... Jesus is saying is your whole way of honoring 
yourselves and one another.